My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. Today we're starting a new series called The Jesus Way. You can see up there. We're taking a key segment from the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to discover what that's all about. Because the Sermon on the Mount really is about following Jesus as king. What is life like in the kingdom of Jesus? And so a lot of people in our culture today maybe have prayed a faith prayer or been to some event where they were emotionally moved and, and they indicated desire to follow Christ, which is awesome. But then nobody ever told them that, they're, that then they're, there's a way to live that follows on the heart of that. There's a way to live as part of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about traditional, what religion traditionally will tell you. I grew up in a highly structured religious system. And the religious systems will, will say, look, here's a checklist. Do this, do this, do this. Here's the list. You check the boxes. And, and most of it is external. Most of it is stuff that, you know, people could see or not see, whatever. And, but, but the Jesus way says, yeah, there is a way of following Jesus, but it's not a list of rules and regulations. It's not a legalism, but it's a, a heart change that starts inside, transforms us from deep within, and then it affects not only our external behavior, which is what most religions are interested in, but it affects our attitudes, our motives. And, and, and it's not up to us to try to strive for changing ourselves, but it's up to the Holy Spirit to transform us into this pattern. Well, what's the pattern? What is that goal? What is that, that ideal that we're moving toward in Christ? It's spelled out for us, among other places, but significantly in the Sermon on the Mount. And now, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five discourses that you find in the Gospel of Matthew. Five times Jesus gathered a bunch of people around and He spoke to them. And, and the first one, the Sermon on the Mount, each one of them has its own different focus but in the Sermon on the Mount, it's in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We'll be looking at chapter 5 in this series. Chapter 5 begins with the Beatitudes. You might be familiar with Jesus said, Blessed are the, and he fill in, fill in the blank. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn, he says. Blessed are the pure in heart. And, and, and then he gives the, the reward that comes with that, with that way of living. And then he moves in the second half of chapter 5 to this <coughs> idea that scholars call the six antitheses. Six antitheses. Now that's just a, a fancy word to say something that's opposed to each other or things that are in contrast to each other. So here's the six antitheses that we're going to be looking at in summary um, through, the through the rest of chapter 5, the second half, where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but... I say to you. So he's got that but in the middle where he says, look, here's, here's the thing that you've been taught, but here's what I'm going to tell you about. And see, what he's doing is contrasting or he's setting against each other as opposites some element of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, as it was understood and applied by the Judaism of his day, of that culture. And he says, so, so look, here's what the law said, and you understand what all the way you've been taught about that, but here's what I'm going to tell you, and listen to this. And what he's doing is he is, he's 
basically trumping the current application and understanding of the law. Now, that might sound a little bit, of, a little bit arrogant for him to stand up and say, look, for your whole life, for generations, this is what you've understood from the rabbis, from the religious structure, from the people in authority, that this is what they've said. But he says, you know what? I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the right. That, that does sound a little bit arrogant, maybe. It might be like, like what it would sound if a first-year law student was to stand up to the Supreme Court and say, look, look, you justices, I'm going to tell you the true interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. Never mind that, that you've been doing this for a long time, and never mind that, that you've got this precedent in this history. My word is the final word. And in, in these six areas... Jesus is going to say, look, here's where the law really applies. Here's how to think about it. Here's what it means to to live this out. Now, this goes back in Matthew 5, just a few verses before he begins the antitheses. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, even heaven and until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, speaking of the law of Moses, that's what governed all of Judaism. And it was highly revered, it was highly honored by all of the Jewish people. Jesus says, look, I didn't come to undermine that. He's anticipating what they're going to think as soon as he starts saying, you heard it said, but I say to you. He's saying, look, let me just uh, let you know right off the bat, I didn't come to undermine that. I didn't come to abolish it or do away with it at all. He says, I came to, literally it says, to fulfill it, to help it so that it accomplishes its purpose. And in fact, Jesus reveres and honors the Old Testament law even more than the strictest adherents of the religion of the day, the Pharisees. And we see that throughout the Gospels, he's always having these little verbal battles with the Pharisees about the proper interpretation because they didn't feel like he was living the law, not the way they understood it. And and Jesus pointed out many times that they were very hypocritical about their application and their understanding of the Old Testament law. And so, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, in these six antitheses, what it really reveals is that it reveals the authority of Jesus. Jesus' authority is final. It's even more authority than the law that these people had had received from God and lived over the years. And it's definitely higher than their interpretations and their applications of the Old Testament law. And so... Going back to the the six antitheses again, what we're going to see is the law points forward to what we're calling the Jesus way. Now, it points forward to Jesus in two ways. First of all, it points forward uh, to his work and his person. So all of the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, you bring an offering to the temple and and all the animals that were prescribed and the, the ritual and everything else like that, it pointed forward to the sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross that brought all of those things to their final purpose. It fulfilled the purpose of the sacrificial system. And the prophecies all pointed forward to him, to his person, to his work, foretelling what he was going to be like and who who he was. But it also, it leads forward to Jesus in that he then gives the final authoritative interpretation of 
what the intent of the law was when God originally gave it through Moses. He tells us this is the real direction. This is the, this is the authentic trajectory of the law. This is how we really need to understand and apply it, and that's what we're calling the Jesus way. So, we see in, uh, you can see in these five, six antitheses, the first one is, has to do with murder, has to do with relationships, and we're going to see the relationship between murder and anger, where Jesus says, you heard it was said to our ancestors long ago, don't murder. But then the antithesis is not going to be, oh, murder's okay, right? And instead, what he's going to do is he's going to point us beyond the outward action of taking a life and point us to the underlying heart attitudes and motives that drive that outward action. And so, what we see, the first thing, three things I want to share with you about this. The first thing, that murder is just the tip of the iceberg for anger. There's more that lurks beneath the surface. And so to, to relate to this, I want you to think about the last time that you lost your temper, the last time you were really mad about something or about somebody, okay? And maybe, you, maybe your personality is the kind of anger where it's, it's going to blow and everybody's going to know it. It's like a storm, a thunderstorm, that lightning is coming down, boom, and pretty, but pretty, pretty quickly it's gone. Or maybe your anger is more the kind that brews it's deep in, it it's, it's may not even come to the surface right away, but it's just simmering, right? And it might be simmering for days and even weeks. But it doesn't matter whatever kind of anger you are prone to. When was the last time that you felt anger? What did you do about that? How did it express itself? And I'm curious, you know, to, I want you to think about what was the reason? What was the trigger how did, what, what really made it happen, what was going on in you or in the circumstances around you that percolated up into anger? And as you, you think about that, because most of us, maybe none of us, have ever or will ever commit an act of murder, but we're all going to experience anger, right? So let's see what Jesus has to say about that here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. That's the first part of the antithesis, right? But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. So, murder is clearly forbidden in the Old Testament, taking an innocent life, and clearly it's subject to judgment in the Old Testament. Not only God judgment, but there's a criminal penalty that murder uh, applies to murder. In fact, every culture in the whole world throughout time has always had some kind of taboo against murder and some kind of civil penalty associated with murder. So this is not surprising at all. But what's surprising is Jesus says, look, that's not the only thing that's subject to judgment. Anger is subject to judgment as well. And so we like to frame it like this. If you think of a picture of an iceberg, murder, the outward action, murder, violence, other things, they're above the surface. They're visible. You can see them. They have noticeable consequences, right? Well, what's going on beneath the surface? What's going on in the heart? What's going on in the part of me that you may never see? or that I may not act out upon, 
what, what's taking place down deeper. And so you'll notice in that verse, in, in verse 21 and 22, Jesus used this very parallel language. He said, if you murder, you're going to be subject to judgment. Then he comes back with a very a, a clear parallel. He says, if you're anger, angry with someone, you're going to be subject to judgment. And that clear verbal parallel clues us into something. It helps us understand that these two are, in a significant way, they're equivalent with each other. Now, I understand that murder and anger have different social consequences. In other words, the, the effects or the consequences of one are not always equal to the consequences of the other, right? So I would much rather have you be angry with me than have you kill me, okay? You with me on that, right? But he says on another level, in another sense, both of them are equivalent. They're both equally wrong. They both have the same underlying DNA. They both have the same ingredients, you could say. One just is more fully expressed than the other one. Now, again, we're all going to commit anger at some point. And so Jesus wants us to know, you know, we're, we're, we might look at the law, the Old Testament law, and say, you know what, I've never committed murder, I'm never going to, so I'm good. I'm good with God, no sweat, you know. But Jesus says, wait, wait, think about it another way. Think about it a little bit more deeply. If you've committed anger, anger is really the root emotion behind murder. Now, we know not that every murder is not driven by anger, but typically it's going to be an act of passion, right? An act of rage or an act of, brew, of brewing re, uh, revenge along the way. So more often than not, anger is the root emotion behind that outward act of murder, of violence, or whatever it might be. The basic impulse of anger typically is that we want to make someone pay for an offense against us, right? They said something, they did something, or some circumstance happened that we were thwarted in some way, we were demeaned in some way, we were diminished in some way, we lost something that was meaningful to us. And so while righteous anger is a thing, it's possible Jesus was angry that way. It's very rare, and so anger is usually a very selfish response to obstacles that people put in our way to what we want, and so we want to return the favor to them. Now, he, Jesus makes two examples here to help us make the connection in verse 22. And so the first one is name-calling or slander. He says in verse 22, if someone calls you an idiot... Or if you call someone an idiot, then you're in danger of being brought before the court. So this, this is slander. This is when you attack someone's worth or their value with your words. Whatever the word you might pick, right? It doesn't matter. The spirit is the same. So murder is above the surface. Acts of violence are above the surface. This one's above the surface too because it is something audible that someone hears you say and it has an impact upon them. And while murder takes away someone's physical life. Slander takes away some aspect of their life. It takes away their dignity. It takes away their worth. And that's why we call it character assassination, right? That's why that's even a thing, because even our society today recognizes that there's some kind of a conceptual connection between character assassination and, in some sense, it, we don't just call it defamation. We say, look, this is some kind of a killing, some kind of a death that takes place here. 
And then the other example that Jesus gives is cursing. He says in verse 22, if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Now, usually this is below the surface, not always, but often this, this may not be openly expressed. Your, your evil intentions towards someone, your bad feeling toward them, what you, the horrible things that you wish would happen in their life or, or whatever that shape that might take, this, this heart intent is not always openly expressed, so it often remains below the surface, but it still partakes of the same attitude and intention as murder and violence, and slander. And you can probably think of other forms of inner anger below the surface, like, like maybe um, passive aggression, that are lurking down below there that, that have the same DNA as anger. They have the same ingredients, I mean as murder, the same ingredients. And so Jesus says, look, this is just, murder is just the tip of the iceberg. There's something lurking beneath in all of us. Now, there's been a lot of study about anger, study about anger by theologians and Bible teachers, but certainly by psychologists in the, in the whole uh, realm of human relationships, and there's tons and tons of books and, and resources that have been written about anger. In fact, I'm reading a book right now about personality, and he just talked in a recent chapter about, about emotions and how emotions reflect different personalities and what are some of the ways that that takes shape and all. It's very insightful, very interesting to me, but... Jesus makes an observation in verses 23 and 24 and 25 that I've never seen in a book, a secular book on anger. He's going to add a surprising twist here when when we see that he's going to tell us that the key to victory over anger, there's a lot of techniques, a lot of things that you could try to do, but but an essential key to victory is to see yourself or to be willing to see yourself as the offender and not just as the offended. Does that make sense what I'm talking about? Because usually when we think about anger, think about these issues, name-calling or cursing or whatever, we, we usually, our default position is to think of somebody else's anger toward me and how it hurt me and how, that, how I felt when that person expressed that anger or said that thing toward me. Or we think of how somebody else made me angry. And yeah, I'm the one who got angry, but it was, it was their fault, what they said, what they did, and I can rationalize the anger that I feel. Well, Jesus totally flips the script here and turns this whole normal way we think about it up on its head when he says in verse 23, he says, here's the application. If you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then then come and offer your sacrifice to God. See, we might have expected him to say, if you have someone against someone else, if you've been offended, if you've been hurt, if you've been the recipient, then you need to go and forgive that person and get reconciled. Now, he does say that in other places in the New Testament. But here he says just the opposite. He says, you're worshiping at the temple. That's a very important activity in Judaism. And you're, you're there, suddenly you're bringing your offering, and suddenly it strikes you like, oh, you become, have this awareness, this realization that someone has something against you that you're not the offended party is how we often like to think of ourselves, but you're actually the offending party in this situation. So Jesus says, whoa, whoa, 
Think about it from the point of view of maybe how your anger has affected somebody else. Or how you've responded to theirs. We, we rarely consider how we've maybe raised up anger in somebody else. How our actions or our words have caused somebody else to be angry. We rarely consider how our anger has wronged them. But Jesus says, look, we're talking about how the kingdom of God works. The Jesus kingdom, the Jesus way. And, and when it comes to relationships, the Jesus way, he's saying that we're really going to look not from our own perspective all the time. We're going to look at God's perspective on those relationships and what that means. In practice, we're going to look at it from the other person's perspective as well as our own. Now, <clears throat> in verse 23, when he says, when someone has something against you, that the someone there, he's talking about that literally it's a, a brother. When a brother, a sister, somebody that you know, somebody that you're in relationship with has something against you, someone that you may be close to, they're in your life. But now look at how he gives us a second example in verse 25. He says, when you're on your way to court with your adversary, Settle your differences quickly, otherwise your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. You see, what's going on there, this is not a brother, but it's an adversary. But it's actually, he says, you're going to court with this person and they're the accuser. They're the one who filed suit against you. What that means is they're the offended party and they see you as the offender. You've done something that was wrong toward them. So Jesus is stirring things up. He's not allowing us just to think about ourselves as being the offended all the time. We want to put the shoe on the other foot. Think about these in a way we usually don't think about it because the Jesus way turns the world's way upside down. This is not how our culture teaches us to handle anger or grievances, is it? But this is a perspective that allows you to look at anger in a new light, in a totally liberating light, to consider anger from God's point of view, and that opens the door for us to be able to be transformed by Him. So, where do these ideas lead to? This idea that anger is really below the surface, murder is just the tip of the iceberg, that, that there's an internal issue, the idea that, hey, maybe sometimes we need to consider that we're the offender instead of the offended. What's the application? Well, what we're going to see now, our last thing, is that, that Jesus goes way beyond anger to talk about reconciliation. And, and if we don't understand the Jesus way in this regard, if we don't pursue reconciliation, then ultimately we're the ones who are going to pay the price, the price of our own anger. So Jesus' priority in both of these examples that he gives is clearly reconciliation. So he says, look, anger should not lead to physical violence or physical murder towards somebody else. He's saying, okay, let's take that, the law and drive it deeper and say that anger should not lead to violence against relationships. You can't undo a murder. You can't bring that person back to life again. This is the good news is that, that when a relationship is broken because of how we've treated each other, that even a, a dead relationship can be restored back to life again. Not easy, but it can definitely happen. And so Jesus' priority is that reconciliation would come in and heal the damage of hatred and anger. And so remember back in verse 23 and 24, it says, look, you become aware that somebody has something against you. What do you do about that? 
He says, go and be reconciled to that person. You're thinking, wait a minute, wait, if they have a beef with me, isn't that kind of their problem, right? Not my problem. Shouldn't they come to me? Well, Jesus says, yeah, they should come to you, and they're responsible to do that, but you're also responsible to go to them. In different verses in the Bible, Jesus puts the onus of reconciliation on both parties equally. That's the Jesus way. So I'm the one who needs to pursue reconciliation regardless of what the other person does. And so these verses have this this urgency about reconciliation. Verse 23 and 24, he says, leave your offering at the altar. Just leave it there. Go and take care of it. Don't let it linger. Don't let more and more water flow under the bridge. Now, I thought what was interesting here, the Sermon on the Mount is taking place in Galilee. Now, here's Jerusalem in the south part of the Holy Land. Here's Galilee in the north part, and it's a couple of days' walk, at least, from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he's talking to people who are far north from the temple, pretty far away from the temple, people who could not visit the temple very often because of the distance, because of the expense of doing that. Jesus says, look, I know you, maybe you come a long way to offer your gift at the altar. Maybe this is your only opportunity to worship at the temple for a long time. Because see, for the Jewish listeners, you take the law and you take the temple, you put them together, that those two things express the very highest expression of Jewish faith. Those were the epitome of what it meant to be a faithful, observant Jewish person. But Jesus says, look, Taking the steps to get right with another person is more important. It's more important than any outward religious activity, more important than any outward act of worship. So here you are today, and we're gathered in worship and singing songs. We have a great worship team today, and they're we're singing songs that are uplifting, and I'm just like, oh man, that's my favorite song, and I'm, and I'm just wor- worshiping God and just caught up in, in the Holy Spirit, and suddenly I look across the room, way over across the other side of the room, and there's that person, that when they come in this door, I go out that door. There's something awkward between us because maybe I said something behind their back and they heard about it, or maybe I said something to their kid that was out of line. Or maybe I made a promise. I said, look, I'll help you with that, and then I never did. Or maybe I called them a name or, or was cruel to them because of their politics or whatever it might be, right? There's an offense. There's, there's something between me and that other person, and I'm, and I'm aware of that in this beautiful worship moment. Man, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do about that? Jesus says, look, it's urgent. Take care of it. In urgency again in verse 25, he says, look, somebody takes you to court. Jesus says, you want to settle that quickly before you get to court. Go deal with it now. Settle it right away. Don't let it escalate. Don't let it go any farther before you deal with it. It's reconciliation. Now, I know that you have no control over how that other person's going to respond. That's why a lot of people never do this. Because it's hard, it's awkward, it's like, oh, you know, what if? What if they get mad at me or whatever? What if it gets worse? 
You have no control over where they're going to come and ask forgiveness of you. You have no control over when you go to them and ask forgiveness of them. Are they going to harden their heart? Are they going to, are they going to like ream you out? Whatever it might be. But the Bible tells us that we still have this responsibility. In Romans chapter 12, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Another translation says, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. So it doesn't matter how they're going to respond. you got to do your part. Jesus calls you to do your part. That's the Jesus way. And we leave it up to the Holy Spirit for how the other person might respond. Now, why is this so important to Jesus? Why is this so urgent to Jesus? Well, if you think about it, reconciliation is a reflection of the very heart and mission of Jesus himself. This is why he came. Why did he enter our world? Why did he go to the cross? Colossians chapter 1 reminds us that this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions below and above the surface, right? Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice to reconcile us with God. The Bible says that we are God's enemies. On our own, we didn't want anything to do with God, or we wanted to define God our way. God says, look, here's the way it, here's the way it, it happens. This is what my way is. And, and, and we've said, look, no, I, I just want to do my way. I want to do my own way. Our thoughts, our actions, maybe our actions were pretty good, but our thoughts were not. Well, Jesus gave his life on the cross to pay the price to make us right with God. That's reconciliation. That's why he came. You can see why it's so important to him, why reconciliation matters. It's the heart of the gospel. Not only this vertical, but also this horizontal reconciliation. That's why, to be honest with you, this has been one of my pet peeves as a pastor in ministry. It's always bothered me. It's always frustrated me when I've had people who just won't do it, Christians who just won't do it. I can tell you so many times I've had this conversation and the person in my church who says, you know what, they hurt me so bad, I will never forgive them. I can never and I will never forgive them. Doesn't matter what you say, Pastor. I'll never, or I'll, I can never go and ask forgiveness for that person. And I go, look, do you hear what you're saying? Do you hear, you're saying that, that Jesus is Lord, that he's my king up to here. But in this area of my life, I'm the king, I'm the Lord, I'm going to totally blow off what Jesus said and shake my fist in his face and refuse to, to forgive when he said, I need to forgive. Or refuse to go to that person when he said, I need to go to that person. I'm going like, you're going to just flat out say no to Jesus like that? Are you really, I have to admit in my heart of hearts, I go, man, are you really a Christ follower? Well, there's another reason why... We have to pursue reconciliation instead of anger. Why this is the Jesus way. Because we've seen that anger is often about making the other person pay. Well, Jesus adds another little twist in these last verses in this part. He says, he says look, you know what? When you're harboring anger against someone else, it's ultimately you who are going to pay for that. They may never pay for that. It's ultimately you who are going to pay. <clears throat> and so... We saw that verse in Matthew 
uh, 25 and 26 says, if someone takes you to court, you've offended them in some way, they're going to sue you. And he says, look, if you don't reconcile with them quickly, what they're going to, you're going to, they're going to hand you over to the judge. The judge is going to hand you over to the police. The police are going to put you in prison, right? And then verse 26, it says, and the summary of that, if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus is using an example from the court system of his day because in those days, if you fell into debt and you couldn't pay your debt, you, they'd throw you in jail for that, which never made sense to me because how are you going to pay your debt if, you, if you're not able to work? But it doesn't matter. He, this is what they would have understood. Now, we don't need to press the details of this too far or over-spiritualize this. It's not about salvation. Jesus is just saying, here's an illustration from life as you know it that's going to remind us that our anger, our hatred, our failure to reconcile, that ultimately is going to hurt us in the long run. So here's that iceberg again. And you can see some of the things that Jesus has identified here. You can think of, of more of other expressions of anger there. But just to take us full circle, looking at, at um, back in verse 23, we saw, if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. Now, that word court is a little ambiguous there. It could mean a court of law. Slander is a crime in our society. It could simply mean God's court. We're answerable to him. That, that's not good for us. And then he makes it more clear in the, the second one. In end of verse 23, he says, If you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So No, no court of law ever punished someone for how they thought. But God knows what lurks beneath the surface. God knows our thoughts. And when we have murderous thoughts and murderous intentions toward other people, that exposes us to God's judgment. And Jesus drove it home even more fully in the next chapter in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. is if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, that's a heavy thing, and there's a lot of nuance that we could add to that, but without going into great detail on this, let me just point out, reconciled relationships are so important to Jesus that in some sense, an unwillingness to forgive others is really, really a litmus test of the reality of our faith, of the reality of how much we mirror the values and heart of God. So this is the very first one of Jesus' six antitheses. It reveals the true direction of God's law when it comes to murder. Nobody would dispute that murder is wrong. But Jesus is saying, I want you to understand the heart behind murder is just as culpable. Anger is murder below the surface. It's a murderous desire to make people pay. But it's not the Jesus way. In His kingdom... First of all, we look beyond the outward acts to the heart. What happens in the heart really matters. And if Jesus is your king, then anger must give way to reconciliation. That's the Jesus way. Now, that's really challenging. I know that. It's really because I've been angry, right? It, it's really challenging when, when I've been wronged. I, maybe I've actually been wronged. Maybe I am the offended party. How do I not respond that way? It's really hard to control my emotions sometimes, to be transformed in my responses to different situations. But here's the good news. Jesus changes the human heart. 
when you surrender your life to Him, He begins a work in you. Christianity is not a self-improvement project. If that's how you've thought about the Christian faith, I want you to, I want you to forget that. Christianity is not about, I'm just going to try to do better until I can be better. Christianity is not about just being better on the outside or just changing what happens above the surface because below the surface, all of us are desperately needy. Below the surface, all of us are sinners who fall well short of God's ideal. But Jesus came to forgive our sins. He came to reconcile us to God. And then what he does is he begins to make us into new creatures, new creations. He begins to transform us from the inside out as we surrender to him and follow him. And so I want to urge you to entrust your life and your eternity to Jesus today if you haven't already done that. And if you have, then I want to really encourage you to to rethink your faith, to go beyond external religion, to to go beyond just what's above the surface And let the Holy Spirit, let Jesus come and penetrate into heart, attitude, motives. And I encourage you to come talk to one of us before you leave to find out more. This is a great conversation to have in your small group with a mentor in your family. Because anger is something that we're all prone to. That we don't always have good resources to deal with. It's a great conversation to have. What did Jesus mean when he said, You've heard this said, but I say to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your mercy to us that, that you care about, you've invited us into your kingdom. You want us to do you want to have a relationship with us. And we confess, God, all the different ways that we've let anger percolate in our hearts below the surface and, and the ways that we've expressed it that have been harmful, that have hurt somebody else. And so we ask you to come and deal in, deal in our hearts. God, make us new. Give us this fresh beginning today because we're going to be honest and openly confess to you everything that we're aware of, God. If it's up to you to make it aware. And as, we, as you make us aware, then we'll confess it to you. We'll own it up, own up to, to you. And by your power, God, if we need to go talk to somebody today, <clears throat> we need you to empower us to do that very hard thing. We want to live the Jesus way. We want you to transform us into those kind of people. And so speak to us today, empower us today, fill us up today so that today we put into practice the things that we've heard. And we pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.